Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello and welcome to episode 140 of the Paul Weller Fan Podcast. I'm Dan Jennings. And 10 years ago, I gave up my live streaming career as a radio presenter with one big regret. Never getting to interview my hero, the legendary singer, songwriter and musician, Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. On this episode of the show, we hear from filmmaker Stephen Barron. This fella started his career with music promo videos for The Jam. We're talking Strange Town, When You're Young, Going Underground, and Dreams of Children. He also happened to create some of the most watched music videos of all time. We're talking Billie Jean by Michael Jackson, Money for Nothing by Dire Straits, Take On Me by Aha. These are films that defined the medium during the early days of MTV and are still considered amongst the very best of all time. In fact, the videos of Take On Me and Billie Jean have each hit over 1 billion views on YouTube. Steve has also directed several big Hollywood movies. We're talking Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Coneheads, The Adventures of Pinocchio, and more. Another really fascinating guest, Stories of the Jam, and so much more. Let's get into it. Steve Barron, thanks for joining me. Hi, uh, yeah, pleasure. I'm so, so pleased to attract you down, to have found you via the World Wide Web, because so many people and their experience of the jam and Paul Weller these early days would have been through some of your videos. You know, this would, these were kind of iconic things for them. So we'll talk about this. We'll talk about your journey through music and film and the power of music video and all that kind of stuff in our chat. So thank you so much for joining me, man. Okay, pleasure. I want to kick off with this love of film. This love of moving image, is, is that always been there? Uh, no, I mean, it was because my mother and father were in the industry. My father was a sound man and my mother was a production secretary in films. So I was, you know, when I was a kid, eight, nine, ten, we sort of went on the set of a few films. But I didn't really get, it didn't capture my imagination or anything. It was uh, it was very hard to deflect me from football. That was all I was interested in. <laughs> Which team? Uh, I should ask. Go on. <laughs> Man United. Oh, dear. This is over, Steve. We've got to move on. <laughs> yeah. Okay, we can stop now. Um, but uh, yeah, I used to go to Fulham a lot. I lived in London, but my mum, when I was six, took me to Old Trafford. She's from Manchester. She took me to Old Trafford and I, I saw 
best law and Charlton and wow. And I just loved football and, and there wasn't any other career I had in my head. So I mean, to be fair, when you mentioned those three players, I think I'd have fallen in love with Man United then as well. Yeah, in the playground, you're judged best, you know, you kind of, that's what got me kicking a ball around in the playground and, uh, you know, just trying to be in. So how did music fit in with your life then as a kid? Was that a big thing for you? Not massive. I mean, uh, it was, uh, I suppose, about that time, six, seven, Beatles came along. Very early memory was, uh, I used to spend a lot of time in Ireland. I was actually born in Dublin. I grew up in London, but spent quite a lot of time over there with my grandparents. And I remember being on the beach in Kalini and hearing She Loves You. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was uh, something that I, you know, I couldn't quite work out why everyone had a transistor radio and everyone was jogging along to this new Beatles-type behaviour. But it stuck. I mean, there really was a, a moment, yeah, even at that age, I knew that this was something different and really happening. Now, we'll talk about your career that's involved music videos for, I mean, proper, like, worldwide superstars, right? We're talking about Michael Jackson, Madonna... <laughs> Bowie, McCartney, the fact that some of these people, you only need to say one of their names and you know exactly who we're talking about. This is the level of the stardom. But it all started with The Jam. That was the first music video, right? Yeah. And in, in those days, they were called promotional films by the record company. Yeah, that's that's how it kind of it began, really, because um, I uh, I was a clapper load. I was a camera assistant. I got into film as a camera assistant on uh, on some pretty big films. I left school quite early, so I got quite in with um, a few of the uh, camera crews and uh, I, I worked on a, a few, you know, big films, Bridge Too Far, which at the time was the biggest film ever made. I think it was the biggest budget anyway. And then um, Superman. <laughs> and- oh, yeah, yeah. Just just Superman. <laughs> yeah. And then into Ridley Scott's first film, The Duelist and that sort of thing. So I was doing movies as a camera set, so as a T-boy. You put the clapperboard in, you load the film in the camera and you, you make a good cup of tea and then you get you get plenty of work. Then I, you know, when I was about 19, 18, 19, I started uh, really getting into music that was in around London and in the WAG club and uh, down at 100 club and things like that. And uh, so meeting people, you know, because I was in the film business, no one really knew the difference between a clapper loader and a director. What's the, you know, they didn't know what either of them really did. The fact that I was working on these big films, um, you know, meant that I I kind of was one side of a bridge between the music world that didn't really cross with film. And, you know, but I sort of reached across that into that area, right place, right time, really. And, uh, you know, I met a few people and I got very ambitious, uh, too young, too naive and got very ambitious to, uh, to actually get, get, uh, get into making some, shooting some, some music. And someone said to me, you know, we should go and shoot the Reading Rock Festival, which, uh, in 1978 was uh, you know was headlined by The Jam on the Friday night and I think it was Status Quo on the Saturday night and Patti Smith on the Sunday and loads of great bands and everything and, and I got this guy I believe I was, I was kind of cajoled along to believe this guy had the money and everything to pay for all this so I got out my notebook with all the numbers of all the people I was working with and real professional camera people and camera assistants and, and grips and uh, and everything got them all and, and hired them all. Oh my God. <laughs> to come to do the Reading Festival in 1978. And I had this horrific experience with it because on the day, the bank kept all that week, they, they kept saying, the money's coming to your bank, you know, to pay them. The money's coming. 
and it didn't. And on the Friday, it hadn't come and still hadn't come. And this guy suddenly stopped answering his phone and uh, had disappeared. And oh, my God. All, all a big fraud. It was all just, or, or it was just someone completely deluded. Oh, my God. So this is all on your shoulders as well, like a 20-year-old kid. Yeah. And I, and I stood there on my shoulders. With, actually, with my sister, who was only a year older than me, Siobhan, and we went to the crew in the tent, and there was 60 crew there. And I said, our money's not come through. And this was before the concert started, you know, and in the afternoon. This was in the morning when we were still setting up the cameras. And I said, I'm sorry, but nothing we can do. And uh, they all had a meeting, and they all got together and said, look, we're here. We'll film the, this night for you. You can take it and try and raise the money. Really sweet of everybody to support in that way. And wow, that's amazing. Yeah. So you captured um, footage of the jam at Reading Festival, that, that gig. Yeah. Oh, wow. Has that ever seen the light of day? Yeah, it's been on a few places, actually. Um, we put together a 50-minute film of that night. It's called kids like me and you because it was sham 69 as well and uh penetration and the pirates and uh ultravox uh, we put together that and and got deals with john weller for the jam and said look you know can we sign a deal and if we can sell it we sell it um but we only got that first night and and so we never got the film we went to make but we we did get that because it was all on film so everything was very expensive and you know we had the film there but we hadn't paid for it you know so we didn't have the money to develop it and <laughs> yeah. you know oh my God. For years i didn't, didn't have the money to develop it and uh so we did three tracks of the jam and it was a tough night because it was a lot of it was a very interesting night because it was when music was a real crossroads and and look at the lineup i mean it was like we had rock and roll there and we had punk and we had new wave and the mods skinheads everyone was around just uh not liking each other's music and yet they're all on the same bill so there was a lot of aggro you know there was like when sham came on there was a big invasion of the stage all our cameras were suddenly ripped off of their you know the tripods and they're all handheld from then on and there was some great footage of jimmy percy breaking down screaming out kids like me and you and Kids United and that sort of thing. And then I think Paul was, it looked like Weller was, um, and the, and the guys were just not having a great night. It was, it was something about it all that it was quite flustered somehow. I, I felt anyway, because later on I got to know them and they, because they then said, um, John Weller said, look, uh, we're, we're, the record company's asked us to do a promotional film for The Strange Town. Do you want to do it? Because we, they knew, they didn't really know anyone else in film and we just filmed them. Oh, uh, wow. So. I love the connection. And, and so you're a fan, first and foremost, of this type of music. You're going to these gigs. Yeah. You're seeing, yeah. And so have you seen the, the band perform prior to Reading? I think I had. I can't, I actually can't remember, but I was, I was definitely a fan. I mean, I really, uh, down and when Dan and Tubes of Midnight came out, I was like a massive fan then from that that moment this was my top three bands you know it was like the jam i really liked the feel of it and the, the adrenaline of that music was great more than punk which susie and the banshees are really was key you know liked some things but this was special this was special and different and really cool now let's talk um, strange town so this was 1979 march 1979 it was released as a single i'm not sure if it was that year or just before that that you filmed the video but the thing that's really interesting you mentioned it i mean there wasn't really an outlet for these videos this is all pre-mtv Top of the Pops is mostly a live show. I don't know that they showed many videos on Top of the Pops at that time, but they got made regardless by record companies because record companies felt that they had to start doing this. But was the brief clear from John Weller? Was it clear from Polydor? Where did it come from in terms of what they wanted for that Strange Town video? Or was it all from your head? There wasn't really a big brief. There was a bit of a chat, and I can't remember whether I think we then had a meeting with Paul, Bruce, 
um, and you know, with the guys and everything, and sat down. And, and Paul said, "Well, you know, maybe uh, how I just felt is that sort of music that maybe we could be running through Soho, a bit like the Beatles, uh, uh, you know, like just running down the streets of Soho, and then a bit alive." And and that was it. So it was a bit of a brief, actually. Yeah, and compared with other bands, which didn't, you know, we'd have a complete blank slate. At least we had a lead there that you, you wanted. Sort of very rough idea. So we, we hired this place, the venue in Victoria, to do the live stuff. And I got this operator from Superman, Peter McDonald, to to kind of light it and bring the cameras and everything. It was brilliant. And it rained that morning and we're, so we're standing outside the venue about to try and do some street running stuff and 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 work you know go over to soho and jump the guys in and out of a van and uh it rained and so i think it was paul who said ah no that's uh, you know let's forget that that's how things happen so is it at the beginning of that is it that song that at the beginning we have them coming out of the tube station that's exactly it yeah paul's got like an a to z guidebook which is obviously the lyric that's just reminding me everything of course what they first came to us to do was down in tube station at midnight which i was like so excited about doing that as a video and i can't remember what we came up with but obviously there's a lot of images there that are in the song and then the disappointment was that they switched the single and uh, said no actually polydor actually want to do strange town so i said well let's have you coming out of the tube because i want to go back in that tube one day and do that video and <laughs> so that's why they ran out of the tube that's the only bit we shot that was outside of just playing live or miming on the stage really yeah that was kind of so the video but in those days you know, I remember the budget was like £2,500, which was like, you know, gets you pretty much nothing. But for us, it was like my first commission as a producer, director, as a, you know, with our, we formed a little company. And, you know, in a, in a time when we were, I was suddenly very much in debt and had to sell my, I bought this little kind of two up, two down on the proceeds of being a camera system and earning lots of overtime on massive films. I had to sell it because of what we owed. Because the Reading went, oh, wow. Yeah. God. And, uh, yeah, so, but this was really exciting and this was the beginning of, and I thought, wow, yeah, this, this is a place I'd really like to go because I love music, I love film and how great would it be to do more of these? Am I right in thinking it doesn't, it kind of goes a little quiet for the company straight after that? Tell me the hamburger story in the mod club. Oh, that's right. There was a, there was a, was it a Thursday night or something? There was a mod night at the club, a club in Charing Cross or somewhere down to, down that way. And, um, the people who were organising it uh, knew that we'd, we'd done this video. So I said, well, I can bring a projector. I could borrow a projector and we can project the strange town on the wall in the club. And uh, and maybe have right by the wall was a little area with tables and chairs. And we could do a kind of strange town cafe. So we put... Um, put this film up and, and obviously loads of kids would come would come up on this night and go ah oh, play it again play it again play it again and we played this three minutes over and over again on thing and mostly the music downstairs was drowning out the sound of it but it was it was just cool it was just cool because of what it you know you could see so we you know with the cafe to make it work and to make it pay and to earn a bit of cash we bought some uh you know, we bought some burgers and put got them out of the freezer and would just grill them on the side there. And I don't remember exactly how how it happened, but for some reason we sold like two burgers for the first three weeks. That was it. <laughs> it nobody, nobody trusted it. And then I don't know what happened. It word got out or something, and they were like, hey, "You got if you get a burger at the uh, Strange Sand Cafe, you're in." And suddenly we had a queue. 
of about 50 kids wanting a burger. And we, you know, we had to look in the, ba- in the very bottom of the grungy old freezer to find any <laughs> to find anything left because we weren't prepared for it. And I, 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 well, I guess also there's one, probably one of the only outlets where people could actually watch this video as well, though, wasn't yeah. it? You know, because there was no yeah. like 24-7 MCV TV or anything like that. Videos of it didn't exist. You couldn't go and buy this in the shop. So, yeah, there, there Charles Grammar Burger. You can watch the Strange Town video. Yeah, that was it. <laughs> That's, That's brilliant. <laughs> now let's fast forward to the band's eighth single, When You're Young. And once again, you're on board. This is um, August 1979. And this is, I think I'm right in saying, filmed in Queen's Park in northwest London. And if this was the one where the kids were sitting around the bandstand and, and the jammer performing on the bandstand. Yes. Yeah, I don't remember much about that one, except that it was Queen's Park and there was still bandstanding in Queen's Park. Um, it was so restrictive in those days. Of the time you had to shoot three minutes of screen time, I, I remember there was all always i i had lots more that i wanted to do but you just don't have to, didn't have time to get it done so it ends up being very kind of repetitive in, in a lot of ways is what i remember of it anyway there were, i don't think there was any particular reason for that for that park or that for that bandstand but it was um it, it was just a moment of a place of convenience for us all to kind of descend on for for a few hours. The thing I love as well is the, I mean, the band looks so great, so cool. I mean, Weller in that video particularly just looks fantastic. He just looks so sharp and just, I mean, the, the band's image was really important to them, obviously. But I guess making a music video, promotional video, whatever you want to call it, was an outlet for them to, to show more of that as well. This is not just a live gig whereby halfway through they're sweaty, they're drowning in sweat, you know, everything's soaked. They can, you know, they can show off a bit of their image, their love of clothes, their love of imagery as well, can't they? Yeah. It, they had that style. That was something you, you just found the best way to shoot it and, and, uh, let it be what it is. They were very cool. At that point, I don't think anything had gone top 20 yet. They weren't massive, but they were kind of the cool ones coming up, but nothing had exploded yet by any means. Yeah. yeah. Well, the next song, The Eaton Rifles, is the one where they start getting daytime play on Radio 1. They come out of John Peel. They get play on Breakfast on daytime of Radio 1. But weirdly, and this must be as frustrating as not getting to make a video for Down at the Tube Station in Midnight, there was no proper music video for The Eaton Rifles. So we skip one, but that must have been bloody annoying because that's a great song. <laughs> it would have been amazing. And I can't remember whether we did a, a concert for it. But yeah, obviously love that track. And that could have, you know, we could have, go, we should have gone into, into Slough and Eaton and, and done, you know, the contrast between the, the toffs and the hard nuts. You know, that would have been a great one. Because those songs are similar to Tube Station, actually, are so um, so visual in their lyrics, aren't they? That they almost kind of paint the music video for you, I would guess. Yeah, and and you and importantly, I don't know whether I, I learned that yet, but not to be too literal with it, because you, you you want that image to still be made up like the song in people's minds. You don't want to absolutely paint it, you know, sculpt it in cement, and find a way to to just make it feel right without being literal, literal. Yeah, that's really interesting. Well, look, you talked about them hitting the big time. This comes fairly soon after with Going Underground. Actually, a double A side with Dreams of Children, which you directed the videos for both of those. And Going Underground obviously becomes the huge big hit, you know, that that still gets played on radio these days. But actually, Dreams of Children, when you listen to that, it's an amazing track, incredible track. But here's a number one single. So it goes to number one when they're out in the US. They fly back on Concord. Did this feel like, like the band hit number one, but did this feel like Steve Barron hits number 
number one as well? It must you must have felt really special about that, surely. Yeah, that was definitely. I'm pretty sure that was the first number one hit. Yeah, we'd hardly done. I mean, that was like the. I think there was a secret affair or something like that in between. But there was very little other bands ringing up and saying, "Come and do the video." So it was our our first number one. I mean, it was tricky because it, you were asked to do two videos in like the time that you you, you just because normally you you stretch out the one and you get every extra hour out of it. But with two videos, that made it really difficult to do. But I remember getting excited because I, I wanted to I wanted to go into a studio and we hadn't yet. And you know, to to make to start making them as film in a way, even though we couldn't really afford to to build a set and do a whole thing. We could afford to go into a studio with a white psych, which is kind of one step away from a set. And so it became something. Uh, so I, I, I think I said to Paul, I just I think we should, you know, come off of a real live stage and go get into a more abstract stage, that sort of thing. And then. Paul suggested a few things that he really wanted, the, the, all the shots of the Prime Ministers and the one, you know, the last with the hand kind of mushing them away. And I think the glass head in Dreams of Children was Paul's idea as well, to do something, or maybe not. I'm not I, can't, I can't remember. It's interesting because we start with the image of Uncle Sam, don't we? The the US Army poster, the, um, you know, I want you for the US Army poster. And then, then there's a red old school telephone and a trumpet and then with a jam shoe. It'd be interesting to know where those elements came from in terms of that shoot but and this is a song that's Paul kicking back kicking out against the, the the government of the time the Tory government of the time and particularly their policy around arms and um how they're spending money on um on, on a nuclear arsenal ultimately instead of um things that are going to benefit the the general public so you get why that kind of image because initially if you watch that and you don't understand why the lyrics and the meaning of the song maybe you don't understand why that's there but I'm, I'm guessing those are the reasons for some of that stuff and there's also the UK join the country's army poster in the background at one point as well isn't there yeah yeah, it was, I mean, I definitely wasn't a political beast at that time. And he and Paul was. So I'm sure those ideas were, I'm, I know he brought some things in and, uh, I'm pretty sure most of them we discussed, but he, he really came up with them. Do you remember seeing that video? Because at this point, the music videos do start getting played on television a bit more on things like Top of the Pops. And I know the band flew back for a, a live performance, but do you remember seeing that video on? TV on top of the pops at all, or any of those sh- music shows. Yeah. yeah, that was suddenly on quite a lot of shows. Uh, the BBC, of course, banned some part of it. They did a re-edit on, uh, I think, on Thatcher's face. <laughs> I didn't know that. Right? Yeah, yeah. They don't like any politics or go. We had the same thing on when it came to Human League later on. Don't you want me? The gun. Somebody pulled a gun out. That had that came out straight away. They didn't like playing music videos. Top of the pops. They really often said to the band, "If you're not going to come in live, you're not on." And we don't want the music video because they wanted it there. It was kind of you're quite unionized as well, and they wanted it, you know, their skills as opposed to some other thing. Mm. But pretty sure it was on top of the, top of the pops. It was definitely on telly a lot. Maybe the Saturday morning shows, things like that. They were showing a lot of videos, and it was around. Yeah, and then that was like, did he go straight in at number one or? Yeah, straight in. Yeah, straight in at number one, which was like almost impossible at that time. I mean, you're getting big record sales on everything else. Well, I think know. the last people to have done it before that were the Beatles that you were talking about. So. Really? Yeah, which was incredible. Which shows that there there was such a build up of support so quickly for for them. That was amazing. So it was great. We were all very excited, cheering. Okay, so let's talk about some of the acts that you work with post the jam. And that was the last time you worked with Weller, worked with the jam, but not a bad way to go out, right? A huge number one single. Yeah, yeah, I thought that was it then. <laughs> On to, you know, Madonna. 
<laughs> let's talk madonna actually i've got to ask you about some of these other things am i right in thinking when when you madonna first approached you to um work with her on the video that you you turned her down uh turned her down yeah well she yeah i didn't turn her down the record company i was in i think i was in canada and they sent this track um and they said but you've got to go to new york now and meet her because uh we'd have to do the video the week after and there's no time and i i didn't like that song i've re- i've liked a lot of madonna songs and she's brilliant i mean and what a, an icon she became as well yeah, yeah. but it was at that time obviously she was a completely new new artist total unknown the record company message i got was from the record company saying uh they really think she's going to be very big and it was this song burning up do you know yeah, song? and I can't even remember the song. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah. I had to look it up. I, I was like, I don't remember it's that one. Really, no. really, as far as I'm concerned, it's really not a great, and I'm not a very good A&R person. But I played the song, and I was like, well, I, I don't even know what to do with that, that song, and it's not very good. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then I got a few calls from some of the record company, and they were like, um, please, you've got to do this, because uh, she's seen the Michael Jackson, and she really wants you to do this. And they said, please, just at least... Go to New York and meet her. Just see what you think and meet her and then decide. So I did. That's a whole long story about uh, meet, meeting her and then being uh, seduced into making that. <laughs> not, not, <laughs> not literally. Not literally, no. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so that was uh that was And it's fun. interesting because, like you say, I mean, this is like, ahead of superstardom for her and people like Bowie you work with people like Michael Jackson we'll talk about these in a second as well but what is it about these artists people like that where it kind of just goes off the scale and they are huge worldwide stars that from your point of view somebody behind the camera who's who's shooting them can you see that star quality is there anything that you can put your finger on in terms of what they've got that others don't have it's very very hard uh, to be clear how that star quality works but it's there yeah I mean definitely with a I mean, meeting meeting her, I thought, yeah, she's there's some artists you meet and you think, well, it could go either way or whatever. But with 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 her and obviously Michael Jackson was just a, an aura around them of magic. And even Madonna, before she became that big star, there was an energy around her that that just uh, was fairy dust that uh, you felt. Yeah, now I see why the record company thinks she's going to be really big if they can just get the music right. Which they did, thankfully, because it wasn't that track. You're right. <laughs> I have to ask you about the um, the um, the switch of um, of music videos, right? So how this became a thing where you said you mentioned before they were promotional video that the, music, the record company thought they often had to do, and suddenly MTV launches in New York, eighty one. This twenty four hour cable music TV channel, you get um, VJs, video jocks um, introducing the music. And um, I mentioned on Facebook that we were chatting, and there's a chap in New York who's been on the podcast, a lovely fellow called Jeff Slate, who's a journalist, and he asked me to to mention to you or ask you about the impacts that these videos had in the US because. For so, he says for so many of them, of these people in the in the states, early MTV was the only place you could see and hear the jam. And he said, whilst the audience and converts may have been relatively small, it was still a sizable following and changed many lives, at least mine. He says. But were you aware of the impacts that the music videos that you were creating had on a US audience when you when you're back here in London? Yeah. Yeah, and actually, even before MTV came along, the year before it, I remember every, we were all saying, you know, everyone's excited about seeing that. Everyone seems to want to see these things we're doing, and there's nowhere to show them, and uh, we should have a 24-hour channel. So we kind of thought of MTV before they it became obvious, and it appeared when, when somebody, uh, the odd 
10 million to, to make yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, which you didn't have in your back pocket, I'm guessing. <laughs> no. um, so it wasn't a surprise to us anyway that the back-to-back video-type channel was going to do well. And we benefited out of that, and a lot of English bands benefited out, out of that. You know, Human League were a, a particularly one that suddenly could travel into heavy rotation on MTV and be massive and the song go to number one. And I guess also as a creative, as somebody, you know, as a visionary, somebody who is able to, you know, tell a story through film so beautifully, the fact that you're getting rotation on MTV makes it all worthwhile. But you can start stretching the the format, can't you? Playing around with it more and being more creative with it. Whereas, like you say, at the beginning of the jam stuff was often it was them miming or looking like they're you know, performing live. But suddenly you're you're able to tell stories through a three and a half minute pop video, which is incredible. Yeah, the budgets started going up and that was the thing, the record companies thought all right we're going to spend a bit more money on this bank because they're visually good uh, if we spend some more money they started seeing the value that they got from uh putting up a bigger budget if they chose the right direction to go in and uh and that meant suddenly you you know you could make to make a narrative in a one-day shoot that lasts for three minutes is very very difficult you could may- maybe do a great minute a minute and a half or you know of, of that visual narrative but you know, once you started getting two day shoots, which is kind of nearly twice as much budget, the videos could be more ambitious. And uh, then it became about, okay, well, that's a different skill in a way. That's a storytelling skill. And that goes back to a lot of the visual artists that, uh, including me, weren't really trained up to be storytellers. So I kind of spent 20 videos, I think, learning how to tell a visual story in a way. Even though I came out of movies, you know, I was literally on the sideline making the tea. Yeah. <laughs> what a beautiful cup of tea you make, though, Steve. Let's be fair. He did win awards for that. I want to talk about three music videos that are still considered amongst the best of all time. Change the narrative in terms of the music pop video. Three incredible pop music video films created by you. We'll talk Aha, Take On Me, Dire Straits Money For Nothing, huge off the scale, and Michael Jackson, Billie Jean. We've mentioned Michael Jackson, all right? Let's kick off with Jacko. I was such a massive fan of Michael Jackson. I would have been so 83. I'd have been, what, seven, eight years old at this point when Billie Jean lands and the album Thriller lands. And I bought it again the other day on vinyl because I've just got back into vinyl again. I got rid of it all. I'd moved to CD. I'd moved to MP3. And now I've gone back to vinyl. And there's, right. I mean, there's not a bad song on that album. It's just terrific. And so how did you get the Billie Jean gig with Michael Jackson? And at that point, he was on the tipping point, I guess. He was, yes, we'd had the Jacksons, Jackson 5 off the wall, but he wasn't the mega star that he became from that album, was he at that point, really? No, he was He was still thought of as Michael Jackson, the kid or the teenager. Um, that's when when you when I got approached to, to do him, that's the image that immediately came to mind, um, off the wall being the latest kind of teenage mm-hmm. disco stuff. And then um, I got it really because he, it was, it was about the time MTV had launched. My, the second video, the first video was Video Kill the Radio Star, was, was Buggles. And the second video was a video I did, it was the Human League, Don't You Want Me. When we went to make that, We'd made it very uh, visually uh, cinematic um, and shot it on 35 mil. Got an extra, you know, a more cinematic look than had been done in, in videos. It had all been kind of that cinema look and 35 millimeter had been not been a priority for anyone. And I think he said that he, he saw that and felt that um, it was something that uh, he wanted to do. He wanted a, a cinematic feel to Billie Jean. He, he wanted a, a fantasy cinema feel to it. The closest he'd seen was in Don't You? want me 
I actually worked on an idea for the stones all lighting up and the, uh, you know, the, the Midas touch for Joan Armour trading before that, which didn't happen. We didn't do. We did another video for, for her, but it was, uh, so the idea had come from somewhere else. And it, but, but when I heard Billy Jean and, and, you know, realized that this guy, you know, we all know that he's got this, uh, magical quality to him, that he could be someone that had that Midas touch. So it made much more sense for this song. So that became yeah. the, the idea and the, and the concept. And, uh, they really liked it, liked the idea. And, you know, I went over to meet him in LA where we were going to shoot a week later. And, and we sat down and I went through the storyboard and, and his, his manager had set, left a message saying, look, he also could do some. He's been doing some looks. Some moves in the mirror, sort of dancing, and, and, and uh, <laughs> source of dancing. <laughs> so, I, so, which I said is great. So, I said, well, we'll leave the chorus. We'll leave it blank. We won't storyboard it or anything. We'll just do, and we'll just take him along this road that we were building that lit up, and that will all be great. So, when I met with him, um, we talked it through, and I didn't see any any of the moves that he was going to do, but he obviously just trusted that he was going to come up with something for those bits. You know, when I got on the set and got the camera on my shoulder, because I used to operate a lot in those days and uh, as well as direct, it's just, I just found it, you know, I, I could get in more into the adrenaline of what's going on. And I put the camera on my shoulder and pointed it towards him. I said, shall we, you know, Michael, shall we do a rehearsal? Shall, you know, because what's happened here is um, these stones, they don't write, light up by pressure, which is what I wanted. And they don't all light up, which is what I also wanted. So this one works. And then those two don't work. That. <laughs> he said, Maybe we should rehearse. And he said, he said, no, let, let's just film it. Let's just film it. So. We put a camera on my shoulder, we rolled the track, and he waited for the chorus, you know, it was blasting out across the studio. And as the chorus hit in, he just started moving like I'd never seen anyone move in the world. <laughs> um, and actually, the eyepiece of the camera steamed up because I was, my, the heat coming off me watching this mega, mega star, you know, run through his improvised actions. And in particular, improvised because he had pulled into the choreography this trepidation, this unknown, because he didn't know which, he couldn't remember which stones lit up and which ones didn't. And he turned it into an animation of trepidation. Uh, that was absolutely, uh, what well, totally blew everyone away. And, you know, as uh, when we came to the end of the chorus, everyone just went, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Even the electrician up in the gantry is kind of a <laughs> cup of tea is just yelling down. <laughs> wow. I imagine you and Michael Jackson had a great connection because he's somebody who was like a true visionary, like he's these creative outputs. So much of what he did was how it, you know, it looks. And he, he loved telling stories through his music, through his videos and stuff. I'm guessing you would have had a, a really big connection on that. Yeah. He, he had one great idea. He didn't really add much to the concept at all. Except he had this one great idea. He said, what about if one of the stores along the street, because we had a camera store that shot off and we had these cats turning into leopards and, and all this magic that was around him. He said, what if one of these stores was a, a tailor and it had a, a few dummies in it and they jumped out and, and danced behind me when I get went past? I was like, that is an absolutely brilliant idea and would be amazing in the concept. And we should do that a hundred percent. And this was only two days before we were shooting. And so I rang up the producer. I said, he's come up with a great idea with these choreographed dancers, but you know, behind him. And, uh, and so producer did a new budget and what we would need to get the dancers and to get everything changed on the set. And, uh, 
it was about $5,000. And he rang up the record company and they said, no way. We're not paying a penny more for this video. We're already paying $50,000. It's more than we've ever paid. There's no way we will do that. And I thought, well, hopefully they're going to tell him that because I thought... <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then the night before we shot, I was staying at the Chateau Marmont and the phone rang and it was Michael on the phone and he was like, hey, Steve, uh, you know, I'm thinking tomorrow, let's not do the, the shop with the... the, the, the uh, dancers we, we don't need to do that okay i'm like uh, uh, okay Th- okay Th- right michael well let's just i'll see you tomorrow and i didn't know what you know i didn't i couldn't land his management in it or you know whatever but they obviously cleverly without saying no i think what they and i'm to this day what i'm pretty sure they did was uh say look save it for beat it save the dancing save the choreography for beat it let's just keep it down to what it is what it has been i mean it's a remarkable thing because i think even when you get to thriller that was like single number seven off the album <laughs> it's just utterly <laughs> ridiculous really but one thing actually was really interesting because first of all MTV initially refused to play it didn't they yeah yeah they they got it and they said this isn't our audience this song isn't our own audience and you know meaning black artists as well and it was shot and the head of CBS was absolutely absolutely shocked and he said this video you know is pop music this is what it is this is pop music and you've got to play it and there was about a three week standoff where they weren't going to play it they they just said no and then when they played it he became MTV yeah. he became he was all about for the next 10 years and and there was a three week moment where it wasn't going to happen but that is incredible isn't it and just shocking but incredible how how that decision ultimately changed the face of music really i'm aware of time and you know we have a hard stop for you for for this conversation so i want to get on to the other two music videos that i mentioned there really shift us on in terms of technology so i want to talk aha take on me and dire straits money for nothing because clearly the budget suddenly are really racking up in terms of how much money you have to to work on things i think am i right in thinking um was it was it take on me that was like a hundred k budget? Suddenly you you know you've got you which you could buy a house for at that time. I think so, suddenly you got bigger budgets, but and visually you're able to tell these incredible stories. Computer imagery being involved, the technology is really enabling you to do just really different things in this space, isn't it? At that time, yeah, totally. Um, yeah, the Aha one was because a very smart Jeff Ayeroff at Warner's, who had actually done Madonna for and many Brian Adams videos, and worked with him on a bunch of stuff. And he, he always knew I wanted to do animation, and he said that we've just done a video for a band that I think could be really big and it's, it's not worked out nobody wants to play it and uh, they are Norwegian three Norwegian guys that are just really interesting looking and got interesting pop songs and, and I, I believe in them so if I get you know this one if I gave you as long as you wanted could you make something really amazing and I'll come up with a, a budget of like a hundred grand and and I said yeah if you've got the time then we can suddenly we can do animation and and stuff and so it really worked on an idea to justify the animation I thought it was important even if it's in a great look if it's not motivated in some way it's harder to engage you know and I went back to my youth as you often do you know and I, I remember when I was five or six reading a comic book and getting totally absorbed in this comic book so much so i thought i was in the world and it was a it was a motorbike rider and a sidecar and they had some villains who were trying to win the race and uh, using stones on the bridge to break them up and make them smash it up and everything and and it, it stuck with me and and then an image came of how i felt about when i looked at that all those years ago and it was like a hand reaching out of the comic of the actual comic and i thought 
that's it. That's an animated hand reaching out of a comic. It was, and that was the center of it. And once I got that, you know, I knew I could work a story around the rest of it. Did you know that the technology exists to do this? stuff on film on screen or was you kind of having to invent that as well no that was very old technology that was the first animation that was ever done in 1908 or whatever was done that way it's rotoscope animation it's very old animation which um which is you film it first and you and then you uh you know you have somebody go draw around the images you've filmed to as much as you want to keep as much as you want of the movement and it's then very real so it's an old form of uh it's just it got lost. So, you know, people preferred Disney animation and, and uh, you know, they didn't see the reason for shit. And also you're shooting it and then you're animating it. So it can be expensive in a, in a, in a way. It, I loved it, that animation. And it was done by a, a guy called Michael Patterson who was coming straight out of um, film school. And uh, he'd done a, a, like a 10-minute short with that f- flair of that animation. So now obviously the money for nothing video is proper 3d animation. That's incredible. And these videos were on MTV Europe then launched and these videos were just on play all the time. I just remember these are such a big part of my youth. These videos like they, they were just incredible pieces of work, man. Oh, thank you. Yeah. That was a, that was a special year really. Everything kind of came together. We had to, we had some fun. Now, look, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to let you go in a sec. I know you've got to be off somewhere. Um, Bowie was one thing I wanted to mention as well. So you guys, you have to also check out. Um, so there was David Bowie with, where there were two videos, which was linked around, um, the film Labyrinth at the time where he'd done the soundtrack. He was obviously in the film Labyrinth as well. And incredibly, you got to work with Jim Henson on the storyteller off the back of that as well, didn't you? Which I mean, God, and this was Jim Henson's last project. I mean, I was, I was such a fan of all of his work throughout, you know, the Muppets and then Fraggle Rock and everything like that. But to get to work with Jim Henson must have been incredible as well. Yeah. It was such a, a special special man as you can imagine and uh we became really good friends and uh luckily enough he yeah he asked initially they asked me to do a couple of videos off of the film and then when when i met and chat with him he said he had this series coming called storyteller and uh he didn't know what quite what to do with it or how it should do the visual style should be and i actually showed him an aha video hunting high and low which was all animation silhouettes not animation but it was all silhouettes and i and i said look we could do it like a fairy tale silhouette thing piece and uh, and we had great fun doing it and then after that i persuaded him to do teenage mutant ninja turtles because i was offered that to do his creature shop went into kind of fighting and knives and swords and that sort of thing but he did it kind of as a favor um, oh yeah that was and he's what designed all the costumes for that yeah he did all the, the ninja turtles yeah oh man steve Layla, this has been so lovely to dig into just bits of your career man I mean, we've not even talked cone heads and uh, mike bass and all these other things um tell me what's next though a crime drama seems to be i did a thing called murder in provence and uh an episode of it and uh, a uh mrs sidhu investigates his thing that's coming out in a few months which uh again is sort of platform crime different takes on the the world of crime and i'm supposed to do another one in the next few months uh that's mainly it i'm also mentoring a, doing a superhero film and mentoring a saudi arabian director female director on uh, a superhero film set in saudi which is all about empower into owning the the power for women ah. 
You love a bit of superheroes. I was going to, I was going to ask you about supervised as well, which was another thing that people should check out. But I'm going to put all these things in the show notes for the podcast so people can dig into all your career post the jam. All right. But Steve, hey, look, this has been so lovely spending time with you. Two final questions for you before you go. Okay. You're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It can be the jam, the style council, Paul Weller solo. I mean, I don't even know. We've not even talked about whether you were a fan of the style council or Weller solo and whether you'd like to have directed one of his solo videos. But for the purposes of this, the song, what would you pick? Well, it's got to be for me, it's down in Tuesday at midnight is still the cream, the brilliant, atmospheric, uh, genius song that I would uh, happily, if uh, I wouldn't be happy because I'd only have one, but uh, you know, that would be the one. That's, do you know what? That's come out more often than any other song on that question. I ask everybody that question on the podcast. That's come out and Wildwood is, 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 is now in second place. But yeah, that song has come out more than any other. Oh. Sweet. <laughs> Good choice, man. Uh, so final question. So the purpose of this podcast is to talk to amazing people like yourself who have these connections with Mr. Weller. They can help us to tell the story throughout this podcast series. But the whole ambition, the end goal is for me to get an interview with Paul Weller that I never managed during my radio career. It was my one big regret from giving up my radio career that I never got to interview Mr. Weller. So I've created a podcast to make it happen. If it happens, Steve, what should I ask him? How are you? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> It's a good opening question. <laughs> um, what, you, what should you ask him? Uh, wow, that's a tough one. Does he still get pleasure out of shoving Thatcher off the table? <laughs> I wonder what you're going to say there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I bet he does. <laughs> hey, Steve, thank you so much for your time, man. Really appreciate it. All the best with the future, and thanks so much for your time. All right. Speak soon. Bye. My thanks once again to Steve Barron, filmmaker extraordinaire, telling us the story of the jam, music promo videos, and much more. What a lovely fella. You can find out more details and watch those videos on the show notes for this podcast, paulwellerfanpodcast.com. Now, whilst you're there, you can also, if you want, get yourself some merchandise, just head to our store and buy yourself a virtual coffee as well. Hello to Peter E, who's done that over the past week. Thank you to you for your virtual coffee. He says, hi, Dan, I've just started a new job and you make the commute so much easier. I joined late, don't know why, so I'm cashing up. Great idea, and I wish you every success in getting that interview. All the best. Well, thank you, Peter. Hi to Mark Josling. Thank you to you for your virtual coffee. Hello, Martin Bonhom. Hello, Martin. Hi to John Reed, Mike C. Martin Glover and Simon Castledge. Thank you to you all for your virtual coffees as well. Get involved, paulwellerfanpodcast.com. And if you want to connect on social media, I'm on Twitter, at wellerfanpod, or you can find me on Facebook and Instagram. Just search for Paul Weller Fan Podcast. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.